The following is a conversation between Phil Buchanan, president of the Center for Effective Philanthropy, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. During a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic, where every nonprofit has to reimagine its service delivery model and how every institution needs to take a look at how it goes about its business, one organization that you can always count on to be in the front row, offering wise counsel and advocating for a particular set of practices is the Center for Effective Philanthropy. And it's a great pleasure to have with us tonight, their president, Phil Buchanan. Welcome back to the Business of Giving, Phil. Thanks, Denver. Thanks for having me. You know, before we launch into the COVID-19 story, tell us about the Center for Effective Philanthropy and the work that you do. Yeah, uh, we exist to try to help um, individual and institutional donors be more effective in their giving. And we do that in a variety of ways. We have a research agenda. We have assessment and advisory services, a lot of feedback mechanisms uh, for funders, as well as uh, programming and a, a blog that has a lot of great content, uh, all of which you can find at CEP.org. Fantastic. Well, CEP and eight other philanthropic membership and advocacy organizations called on foundations to increase their giving in response to the coronavirus pandemic, even if their endowments take a hit. Now, this is a question of the hour. What was the case that you and your colleagues made, Phil? Really, that foundations are unique position to be counter-cyclical forces. In other words, for nonprofits who are seeing other revenue streams dry up or slow to a trickle, whether that be earned revenue or giving from individual gift givers who might be very much affected by the economic impact of COVID, foundations can counter that uh, in bad times. And I've long believed that, um, but if ever there was a moment where that was necessary, I think it is now. And I think it can be done in a way that, that does not jeopardize a perpetual foundation's desire to be perpetual, uh, although it does mean that they will emerge from this moment a little smaller than they would have otherwise been. But if that means that key nonprofits emerge from this moment in existence and able to deal with uh, this moment and the tremendous demand that they're experiencing, I think that's an impact that's much more important uh, than the eyes of the foundation after through this. Mm -hmm. Well, I know it is still the early innings, but have you detected any kind of response from foundations as to how they're receiving that message? Yeah, it is early days. And I think these conversations are happening right now uh, in foundation boardrooms. So there were a couple even before um, the nine organizations that got together and put out the statement. There were a couple of foundations like Libra and Mary Reynolds Babcock that very quickly announced their intention to dramatically increase their grant making, to double their grant making. Uh, others, uh, I have said that they will not do that, that they will uh, maintain. Uh, of course, there are still others that have said they're going to cut their grant making from what was originally budgeted, right. um, which I think is a real shame. I mm -hmm. think most of the big foundations are still figuring this out. And even if they made a decision uh, two weeks ago, they may revisit visit that decision with their board in another two or four weeks. And I do know of some significant foundations where this is an active conversation, and I'm hopeful that some of them will decide that they need to do more than they normally would uh, in this moment. Yeah, I saw the Wallace Foundation indicated they were going to be doing exactly what you've advocated for. And it's going to be interesting because it needs some momentum. 
And that's how these decisions usually come. You have to get that critical mass. And then when you get a couple of the big guys and enough of them around that critical mass, others begin, a cascading begins. But we haven't gotten to that point where we've gotten that critical mass yet. So I think uh, if it picks up momentum, it will continue to get momentum. And if it doesn't, it probably won't. And we'll probably find that out in the next couple of months. You know, I went to your website and I was interested in your CEP rapid response grantee feedback tool. Great idea. Tell us um, how it works. And if you've gotten any data back from it, what has it shown? Yeah, we have um, developed some questions about how this moment is impacting uh, grantees, uh, what they're looking for from the funders. Uh, and actually, you know, it's interesting. We had one group of foundations uh, come to us and say, can you do it, do this for us together? Because we have a lot of the same grantees. There's a lot of worry about understandable worry and sensitivity about over surveying nonprofits in this moment. Um, but the reality is that even in this moment, and maybe especially in this moment, it's very difficult for nonprofits uh, to directly say what they what they really need. The power dynamic uh, and the sort of power imbalance and the fraught relationship, you know, doesn't change just because we're we're in a crisis. So we do think it's important to provide easy and quick ways for nonprofits to say what they need. And one of the things that we have in this short survey is a um, estimation of basically how close you are to having to seriously cut back or wind down essential services. And what that allows um, the funders to do is to see who is the subset of grantees that we need to be talking to right now because mm -hmm. they're in real, real jeopardy. And it's a much quicker way to get that feedback than calling 342 grantees and having that conversation. Now, I want to make uh, the point also that um, we don't, we're not trying to be the only way to do this. So, so we've actually put the survey items, uh, if we haven't already, we're doing it in the next day or two on our website for anyone to use if they want to use them and administer the survey themselves. If they want us to do it for them, then we're happy to do that uh, as well at, at cost. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of moments, Phil, this is an existential moment for many nonprofit organizations as they're fighting for their survival. What role do you think that revenue mix might play in all this as to who's gonna make it and who is not? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, everything's turned upside down, right? We've heard for years that, you know, earned revenue is, is more sustainable than contributed revenue. I never really understood or believed that. Uh, I think either can be, uh, can be quite um, dependable or not so dependable. It depends on the nature of the earned revenue, the nature of the contributed revenue. But I think organizations, clearly arts organizations with ticket sales driving a significant uh, chunk of their revenue are, are vulnerable in this moment. Uh, or you look at wonderful organizations like, uh, you know, UTech, which we've talked about before because I wrote about them in the, in the book that you interviewed me about a, a year or so ago. You know, they, they're, they're working with gang-involved young people. They're employing them in social enterprises a uh, mattress recycling facility, a cafe, a woodworking shop that makes cutting boards for Whole Foods. They can't run those social enterprises anymore, but they still need to pay the young people because it's their only source of income. And in fact, their expenses have gone up because now they're delivering some meals that they would have provided uh, at their site. So many of these organizations are dealing with earned revenue that's been cut off 
and simultaneous increase in, in costs uh, and demand for their services. So I think earned revenue is a point of vulnerability. I think, as I mentioned before, reliance on the kind of individual donor who's most likely to be affected by this economic uh, downturn, you know, regular people with regular jobs that they mm -hmm. may have lost. Uh, I think that's a point of vulnerability. And then the third obvious point of vulnerability, um, which is not so much revenue mix, but is just those with limited reserves. And, um, and, and we know uh, there's a lot of different data out there, but it all tells more or less the same story, which is that there is, uh, you know, too high a proportion of nonprofits that have very little in the way of, of reserves. So, when funders are looking across their grantees, I think, and, and we're, uh, some of us are calling on them to do more in this moment, it's not as if you wanna give everybody an extra 50%. Uh, what you wanna do is identify those organizations that are both uh, crucial to your ability to achieve your goals and are the most vulnerable and target the resources there, not necessarily to the organization that has you know, a big endowment and a year's worth of, you know, operating reserves on top of it or whatever. Yeah. And the point is when an organization closes its doors, it never opens its doors again. That's essentially what happens in, in every field of endeavor. Well, the picture you paint is a tough one and a tough picture like that takes extraordinary leadership. And you recently ran a seminar, um, Leadership in Crisis, Insights for Nonprofit and Philanthropic Leaders. Share with us, Phil, some of the highlights of that conversation. Yeah, well, it was uh, a great conversation, I thought, with, um, with uh, my favorite professor, uh, Nancy Kane, who uh, I had uh, as a first year at Harvard Business School uh, many years ago, and I've stayed in, in touch with her. She has a great book called Forged in Crisis about uh, five people from history, uh, leaders who were, she argues, made, not born, uh, made by the crises that they faced into the great leaders that they, they were. And, um, you know, her perspective was uh, really one of, um, you know, deep concern about the extraordinary challenge of this moment, um, lots of lessons about what leaders, the sort of steadiness that leaders need in this moment, the, the, the need to take care of yourself, even as you take care of your organization and those uh, who you serve, the need to accept uh, the nuance, the constantly changing um, landscape in which the right answer today might not be the answer tomorrow. But I think the most powerful you know, thing she said was really um, just to uh, uh, Lincoln, end of, of the webinar, in a way that I think is directly relevant to the conversation about philanthropy and spending levels. And, and we, a lot of us are familiar with this quote, but um, she said, uh, you know, she reminded us that Lincoln said, the dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. Uh, mm -hmm. This was in, I think, maybe 1861. And as, uh, uh, as our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. And if there was one theme in that webinar, it's that whatever defaults and norms make sense in regular times, we need to be careful not to be defaulting to in these times. And, and so that, that's really the, the, the overarching, I think, message from, from that webinar. Yeah, and if I could add to that too, I think the decisions we're making and the way we're thinking in these times, we don't want to default back to the way we were two years from now when we return to normal. Because I see a lot Absolutely. of people making very, 
uh, sincere on authentic, authentic commitments about how they're going to operate. But I also know human nature as you do. We tend to fall back into those patterns when life gets comfortable again. And that would be a tragic mistake. I want to pick up on your book because it came out about a year or so ago called Giving Done Right. Um, what were some of the fundamentals, Phil, that you highlighted then that have really come into play during this pandemic? And might there be one addendum that you would add to it now as a result of this crisis? Uh, sure. I mean, I think the first chapter of the book is um, nonprofits and their unsung American heroes. And it's really uh, was, well, it's even more clear now uh, just how vital organizations that are often serving the most vulnerable people in this country, who, by the way, have been disproportionately impacted uh, by COVID. I mean, if you look at the data on the impact on um, people of color, African-Americans in particular, relative to you know mortality, uh, uh, the mortality relative to their share of the population in cities like Chicago and Milwaukee. If you look at the effect on um, recent immigrants who are employed in the hospitality industry, you know who's serving uh, those populations. It is often trusted local community-based organizations staffed by tremendously talented nonprofit staff who need to be respected and supported for the vital work that they do. So if that was true then, uh, when I wrote the book, I think it's even more true now. And it has implications for how we fund. Um, it has implications for the level of trust that we place in folks to allocate resources as they see fit in light of the moment, uh, rather than restricting all our grant dollars and say, you can spend for this, but not spend for that, which makes no sense as circumstances are, are changing uh, uh, day to day. Um, you know, another piece is just the, the need to think about strategy to achieve goals in a collaborative way that crosses organizational boundaries. I mean, the, the, there is a heightened level of collaboration among nonprofits right now as they recognize that um, the, the, the folks that they serve might come to them because they trust them for uh, a new need that that organization hasn't even tried to meet in the past. And now they need to partner up with other organizations to figure out how to, how to meet that need. So there, there's a bunch of things that I think, mm -hmm. um, you know, are sort of were true in the previous context and that are just revealed as even uh, more crucial in this moment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, speaking of unsung heroes, you're doing a series on your blog called Supporting Our Unsung Heroes in a Time of Crisis. Share with us, if you would, a story of one. Sure. I think of um, someone I just met over the phone named uh, Chitra Hanstead in Seattle, runs an organization called World Relief Seattle, um, related to what I was just saying. Um, they're working with immigrants, uh, asylum seekers. Uh, to help them get their first jobs. Uh, those tend to be in the hospitality industry. They were hard hit immediately. So, so this is a population of folks in Seattle who trust World Relief Seattle, uh, Seattle because of their 40-year legacy of working in this community. It's small organization, just a $400,000 budget. But all of a sudden, she's got um, folks showing up who have no food. Uh, and so even though what they have typically done is things like 
help with um, job placement, pro bono legal services, and so on. All of a sudden, she's partnering with a local food bank, and she and her staff are providing, you know, 300 meals in a day and then delivering another 125 more because that is what's needed. Meanwhile, she's worrying about a decline in contributed revenue and the potential, you know, not to be able to meet payroll at the very moment that the demand is, is overwhelming. Uh, and um, it's people like her, you know, she herself is an immigrant, deeply, deeply committed to uh, what she's doing uh, working nonstop. And, you know, uh, the advice I have for individual donors is if you, if you have the resources, if you are doing okay, write checks now to those community focused organizations that you may be supported in December. E even if you're, if you're worried about your financial position, try to write a check for the amount that you wrote in December. So they at least know early in the year, if they have a fiscal year, you know, that's the calendar year, mm -hmm. that they've got that. And then think about whether you can do more later in the year. But do that now. Do not wait. Uh, now is the time to give. You know, finally, Phil, what do you think the impact of COVID-19 will have on the sector? First, as it pertains to how philanthropic organizations are going to go about their giving, and then how nonprofits will have to operate in the future and the changes you foresee them making. I mean, it's so hard to know. I mean, I, it's, it's, there's the hopes and the fears, I guess. And my hope yeah. is that we come out of this having recognized that some of the ways we fund nonprofits just, just make no sense, as we've already discussed, uh, in terms of um, you know, the single year heavily restricted grants um, with um, not enough trust that they're best positioned to figure out how to allocate those resources. I hope that changes. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the, the, the perspective on collaboration, um, you know, the realization that we have to work together. I mean, I have never done more collaborating with other organizations, particularly those eight that, that, that joined together in that yeah. statement, but, but others as well. Uh, than, than I have and then we, we and CEP have in the last few weeks because we need to in order to have the uh, impact that we, that we seek to have. Um, you know, I hope that there is a heightened awareness of the deep inequities in our country that, that we don't lose sight of because it was there, we knew it was there, but we're seeing in um, really horrifying uh, personal terms, what it means uh, right now. Uh, and as this epidemic hits different people in different ways, in, and in ways that are correlated, uh, you know, to the color of their skin, to their gender, women are being hit particularly hard in, by, by the economic uh, downturn um, in various ways. I'm not saying that others aren't affected. I'm just saying mm -hmm. there's a disproportional effect. And I hope we don't lose sight of the need to do something uh, to, to close those gaps. And, and then I guess the fear is the one that you rightly alluded to. The fear is that, is that we don't, uh, uh, that we just sort of go back uh, to our old ways uh, and that we don't take the lessons uh, from this that I think we uh, might and, and could. Yeah. You know, I look at that, uh, the heightening of those inequities and seeing them, I, I refer to that as the great unmasking. 
because they've yeah. been there all along. That's but right. They've been somehow camouflaged or blunted in some way, and now we're seeing them in vivid color, and uh, it, it really has an impact. You have some great information on your website, and you are constantly adding to it. Tell us what visitors will find if they uh, take the time to stop by. Sure. Um, well, I, I hope I hope folks check out our blog where there are perspectives, you know, every other day about what's going on or so about what's going on right now um, in terms of f philanthropic response, the nonprofit experience uh, during the COVID crisis. There's also a lot of research. It's all free for download on uh, of relevance to both individual and institutional donors, how to best support nonprofits, how to think about strategy. Um, and um, and, and then there's lots of uh, resources that are more geared toward uh, institutional foundations as well. Yeah, but good stuff. I wanna let you know how grateful I am to you, Phil, for making the time to do this. It is always such a delight to talk to you. Thanks very much and stay well. You too, thank you, Denver, for having me on.